The NBA Draft is tonight. It's Thursday, June 22nd. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. We have an NBA analyst and former executive to help break down all the biggest narratives going into this draft. But first, late on Tuesday, we got news that could have huge implications for Major League Baseball. Joining me to break that down is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Happy to be here. So this is your first time on the podcast, and uh, you've been with the company, what, about a month or so now? Just about a month now. Okay, yeah. So let's just get to know you a little bit. Um, How long have you been writing about sports and business? Uh, almost 30 years now. I've been around, been around at a bunch of different places and uh, newspapers, trade publications, uh, but super excited to be with uh, Front Office Sports and we're already doing a bunch of great things. All right. And, and let's get a couple favorite teams. Who, uh, who? What's the team that you can't let go of even when it's not good for your mental health? So I grew up a and still am a New York Yankees fan. I come by it honestly. I'm from upstate New York. And when I was growing up, they had a single A uh, farm team in Oneana, just a couple of towns over from me that I used to go see a lot. I saw a lot of uh, player Don Mattingly come through, Fred McGriff, a bunch of folks uh, uh, back in the day come through and and that really and just up the road a little further was Cooperstown. Uh, so that really just solidified my love of baseball and love of the Yankees. And that holds true to this day. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm a Mets fan. So if you want the that this experience, but depressing and just like endlessly, <laughs> you know, falling on its face. Yeah, we've come over to our side in Queens. Um, All right, so let's go down the East Coast to uh, the news that broke Tuesday night. So what happened? Yeah, so this has been sort of a culmination of of literally more than a decade of legal acrimony. And and really, the roots of of that legal acrimony even go back a full generation that uh, the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network, the RSN that was created uh, to house the Nationals and the Orioles as compensation to Orioles owner Peter Angelos as compensation for the Expos moving in to become the Washington Nationals, there was finally a settlement. Uh, they've literally, uh, um, Masson, which is majority owned by the Orioles and the Nationals have been literally fighting since 2012, uh, late 2011, really, uh, in terms of what the rights fees for the Nationals were going to be for the 2012 through 2016 seasons. Uh, it went through internal league arbitration. It went through multiple courts. And finally, there was a settlement in which uh, Masson will pay the Orioles or will pay the Nationals about $100 million. It resolves that 2012 to 2016 uh, situation. And now the parties move on to the next tranche of years, which is 2017 to 2021. But this had been uh, for Major League Baseball and for the teams involved one of the, one of the thorniest issues really around the entire sport uh, for many years, and now we at least have some an element of resolution to this. Right, and why this is more than just a one hundred million dollars settlement is that the Lerner family wants to sell the Nationals, but the big obstacle around that is that it's unclear how much TV money they can get from that team because 
the Orioles own, what is it, three quarters or two thirds? About 75%. There'll be a, a sliding percentage a little bit further, but the Orioles will always have a majority share of Masson. Right. They own the regional sports network for both teams in perpetuity, which is not an ideal situation if you want to buy a baseball team. That's one of your, your main revenue sources. So how much closer does this get us to a national sale? It certainly helps. The process had been paused essentially for about a year, close to a year uh, after the Nationals had initially announced it intent to sell and they started kicking the tires and inviting bids and so forth. Uh, that process had been paused because there had been such a lack of clarity on this crucial revenue stream. This gets us a little closer uh, that even within this given structure that was set up by the the Expo settlement, um, it may not be ideal. It may not be what Ted Leonsis or some other prospective buyer of the Nationals ultimately wants. But at least in this scenario, we have a sense of clarity of revenue. These t- teams are always sold as multiples of revenue or they generally are. And now we have a much closer sense of what the at least the near term revenue picture is going to look like for the team. So it helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And Leonsis is is the key name here. Um, I mean, he he doesn't own the Nationals, but he's made it clear that he wants to buy the Nationals. He owns, see if I can do this on memory, the Washington Capitals, the Washington Wizards, the Washington Mystics, and I believe the Monumental Sports Network, crucially, which is a, a regional sports network that broadcasts those teams. And so he would like to add the Nationals. And what do you know, he happens to have an RSN that freshly rebranded RSN. Right. Yeah. And so makes all the sense in the world that he could buy the team. Obviously, there are only 30 Major League Baseball teams and he might not be the only bidder, but that seems to be the obvious direction this is pointing. Yeah. And he's and he's got the wherewithal to do this, that, uh, you know, baseball teams aren't going to see the type of franchise, you know, heights that we've seen in the last couple of NFL uh, deals. But, you know, a, a, a large market Major League Baseball team could still reliably go for, you know, upwards or maybe more than $2 billion. He's a guy who can very easily write that check. Absolutely. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Up next, we have ESPN NBA front office insider Bobby Marks. He used to work with the Brooklyn Nets and has fantastic insight into the league, the draft, and how new CBA rules are changing everything. We'll have that conversation next. I am joined now by Bobby Marks, ESPN NBA front office insider. Welcome, Bobby. Hey, Owen. How are you? Doing well. Great to have you here. We're going to talk draft, but first, I want to get some quick thoughts on the blockbuster trade that sent Bradley Beal to the Phoenix Suns in exchange for uh, Chris Paul, among other names. Just high level, what does this mean for the future of these two franchises? Well, for Phoenix, I mean, they, they went all in in February with the Kevin Durant trade. And I don't know if I have another name for going double all in with the Bradley Beal trade, especially um, with these new collective bargaining agreement rules that are going to start come July 1st. I I basically, they basically took a, a lighter to the rules and lit it on fire here because what the new rules were supposed to be is to not be able to put super teams together, three players on max contracts, what the Suns were able to do is basically do a deal before these new rules start. Um, and now you have 
three pl- or four players when you include DeAndre Ayton on max contracts. Um, they are going to have to be certainly creative how they build out their roster. There's really no in between, right? There's no getting to a first round or second round is not good enough for how this roster is 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 constructed here. And I think we'll learn a lot about more in the in the long term here, but certainly for the short term, I'm not ready to put them on the level of Denver um, because I don't know what the rest of that roster here is. And I, I think for for the Wizards, you know, it's certainly whenever you have a player who has a unique situation with a no trade clause and basically can kind of dictate what team he wants to go to and essentially almost what the trade package is, it does limit you a lot as far as what you can get in return. Um, when you have a new front office that's in place with Michael Winger, um, who really has no relationship to Bradley Beal and wants to build it his way, he's the first domino to go here. And it's certainly two Two franchises kind of going in, in different directions. The Wizards with a complete reset and Phoenix going all in. Are the super teams we have now, Phoenix included, obviously, are these, is this the last set of super teams before we kind of figure out the next paradigm for how championship teams are built? I think so. I, I think just based on the the teeth of the rules or the and how you know strict they are, do not really start until next offseason. So there is a little bit of a window here if Miami wants to go out and try to get Damian Lillard, for example, to do that. That won't be the case next offseason here. And I think from Phoenix's perspective, they saw that window here. But as you know, and as you watch Denver, Denver is certainly the blueprint as far as how to do it, right? Like you, you know, Jokic, Murray, the draft, Christian Brown, Gordon Trade. Michael Porter Jr. draft, and then and then have a, a nice complimentary of those role players. Contavious um, Caldwell-Pope, um, player Bruce Brown, players like that. That will be the challenge for Phoenix, finding those complimentary role players. They won't be able to do it in the draft because they're restricted now as far as what they can trade here. They're limited as far as what they can spend here. Um, but it is hard. If you're going to do the super team route, you better make sure – not the first or not the second, but the third guy you bring in is the right guy. And that's the guy that you want to build. You continue to have on your roster for the next few, three or four years. Turning our attention to the draft. So I just have some basic questions about some of how this, this works. In terms of contracts and signing bonuses, what's the difference between the top two or three picks to you know late first round, second round? In terms of money, <laughs> what's the difference there? I actually did my homework because I had heard that you were going to ask me that question. So I actually wrote it down for me. So it's a, it's a, it's all scaled one to 30. Okay. So based on how you're picked, it's a sliding scale. So of course the first pick in the draft is four years, $53 million. First two years are guaranteed years, one and two years, three and four have a team option. You go down to the second pick in the draft, right around $49 million. So not a big jump between those picks. Third pick in the draft is right around $43 million here. So it is a little bit of a sliding scale when you get all the way down to pick 30 um, as far as how the numbers work there. As regards to signing bonus, signing bonuses for um, first round rookie contracts are extremely rare. We rarely see it. What you see is we see a lot of players taking an advance out against their contract. So for example, um, Paulo Bancaro last year took out a $10.6 million advance against his salary over the you know the next few years here. Where Chet Holmgren, who went number two, 
million dollars. And all of that is really negotiable between the agent and the, and the player here. Most of the time, it's like like startup money. Hey, I want I want to buy a house. I want to get I want to buy my parents something. Um, because remember, when you get your first check and you're looking, wait a minute, I thought I was getting I was netting this amount. No, you took out an advance, which is eventually deducted here. So it's more of the advance route than than the um, the signing um, than than a player doing the signing bonus route. And does any of that change if you just so happen to be a generational superstar named Victor Wembanyama, who we've been hearing about for a year or more? Does he bend the rules at all, or you know, same rules even if you're if you're him? If Victor Wembanyama wants to take out an advance and and it's a lot of money. Then you do it, <laughs> and you do it here. I think, I think it's just, I think it's just everything is just negotiable. I think it's a matter, certainly a matter of cash flow from the team's perspective here. But um, you know, certainly, um, you know, I think certainly, as I said, it's it's really you know ne- negotiable. Usually, it's in that four to five hundred thousand range. But um, there are times when players are getting in the millions as far as that advance. And as long as we're on Victor. What does having that number one pick mean for the Spurs in terms of you know their ability to build the next dynasty? Oh well, I mean it means a lot. I mean I think from a business standpoint, I mean you saw the videos of what t- you know season tickets basically probably went through the roof. I think the evaluation of your franchise when you add it when you when you add in the uh, the marketing and the merchandise and the sponsorship component here. And then the beauty of it is, is that when you have a player like Victor or any of these players that could be generational talents, you have them on a basically a $10 million contract for the next four years. And then next, he'll be a restricted free agent or you can sign him to an extension. So when you draft a player in the first round, the likelihood is that you're going to have him on your roster for eight or nine years. So that's why it's so important as far as whether it be in San Antonio, whether it be in Charlotte, whether it be in in Portland, for for these teams to kind of get it right there. You know, you were a, an NBA executive with the Brooklyn Nets for a little while. The marketing opportunity presented by someone like Victor Wembanyama is that just icing on the cake compared to what you're getting as the player, or is that really a huge difference for the franchise? Well, it's a huge difference for the agent because the agent's making a bigger percentage off the marketing deal than the rookie contract. The rookie contract, they're really making a very small percentage and they're only making a percentage off of like the salary increase per year. So from an agent perspective, that's where kind of your bread is buttered as far as whether it be Nike or whether it be Pepsi or Coke or some of these other sponsorship agreements. And I think how that ties with the organization is that certainly if you are the Spurs and you're going into, you want to do a deal with Chick-fil-A. Well, maybe here's your spokesman for Chick-fil-A, you know, Victor going forward and it can work out from both sides. So as I said, you worked with the, the Brooklyn Nets. What are some of the the parts of this whole draft process that we don't see from a fan perspective? You know, even if we're reading some articles, we're kind of tuned in here. What might be we missing that goes on behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, from the player's perspective, it's a grind. You know, it's they've started this process in um, right when the college basketball season ended. They did, they've done their um, individual workouts with their agents, with their trainers. They went, they've gone to the combine. They've been poked and prodded. They've traveled all over the country. Maybe not some of the players in the top, you know, four or five. Um, they've done team interviews, they've done psychological interviews, they've done physicals, they've bounced, they've worked out against other players here. 
from a team perspective, it's all about information gathering. It's all about information gathering. So when you go in, um, whether it be tonight or tomorrow, and you're doing your big board, your top 58 or your top 60, and you're looking at who's the best available for who you are going to pick. If you're the, if you're picking fifth, and all of a sudden the guy you have as the second best prospect is still on the board, you're doing cartwheels, right? Like so, it's all about having an abundance of information. Um, it's all about getting it right. It's all about getting it being prepared in case different trade scenarios pop open here. Uh, it's exciting. Um, it leads it certainly leads into free agency here, but from the player's perspective, it's the ultimate grind. You know, it really is for those players who are in the teens or the second round or some of those players that are un- who might go undrafted. And just to wrap us up here, there is absolutely zero intrigue at the number one pick. Looking beyond that one, where are you seeing the potential for, you know, trades or just surprises? Well, I think we're I think Portland certainly at three is going to be interesting just because we've we've been hearing a lot about Damian Lillard. Right. What is what's going to happen to the future of Damian Lillard? What happens if Portland stays at three and drafts, whether it be Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller? Um, is Lillard content with, you know, another young player and then bring back maybe Jeremy Grant? Um, certainly Charlotte at two is intriguing. That's a team that's going through a different an, an ownership change. Um, they've got, you know, a two first round picks and three seconds. They've got five total here. Um, but I do think, you know, once once we get past one and we all know who's going to go there, it just opens up to so many different, you know, possibilities. All right. Very interesting. Bobby Marks, thanks so much for joining us on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Rate us and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. It makes a huge difference to us. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.